0: Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 886 uh, is where you find the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Over the, uh, the Thanksgiving weekend, so last weekend, uh, I was scrolling through Netflix. We had a little bit of downtime at home with the families, maybe many of you did. I was scrolling through Netflix uh, and they just released a number of new holiday shows, holiday-themed shows and movies. Uh, one that they seemed particularly intent on promoting, at least when I was on there, uh, was called Christmas Chronicles. Uh, um, I don't know if any of you have gotten to see that yet. I've actually heard in the last week or so that it's a, it's a really cute, fun, and, and well-done family movie, kind of in the vein of like the Santa Claus. Um, so I heard, heard good things about it, haven't seen it myself. But what caught my attention uh, was that in this preview clip that automatically plays, right, when you're kind of scrolling through, Uh, Santa Claus, who's played by Kurt Russell in that movie, he's on some kind of mission uh, to rescue Christmas. It's about as much as I know because I haven't seen it. Um, And in one particular scene, he says this line. He says, People need Christmas to remind themselves how good they can be. People need Christmas to remind themselves how good they can be. Now, I don't think it was audible, Uh, But inside, my immediate reaction was like, boo! (laughs) And it it struck me in that moment, like, this this is what Ecclesiastes has done to me. (laughs) I'm now a grown man that boos at children's movies. (laughs) But in all all seriousness, it really really hit me uh, in that moment, right? The day after Thanksgiving, it hit me in that moment, just how bombarded... That you and I have already been, will continue to be this season uh, with these counterfeit, empty promises of hope, of peace, of goodwill via the efforts of humanity. And people will say that to us, and movies and shows will proclaim that to us, not because they're intending to sell us on a lie. They'll do that because they believe the lie themselves. Because people in our society and our culture believe the lie themselves. Ours is a culture, it's a a world that can and has taken this celebration of a a God-centered view of the world. If ever there was a celebration of a God-centered view of the world, it's this season, it's Christmas. And has turned it into somehow secular humanism. So here's the truth. We absolutely need Christmas. We desperately need Christmas to remind us of something. But not about how good we can be. We need it to remind us actually... On the other side of things, how dark we can be. How dark we are, how dark this world is, and how dark it would be if not for the light of the life of men, the eternal incarnate word, Jesus Christ, coming into the world. The same time that I've been booing Christmas movies, children's Christmas movies, I found myself in this past week, I started listening to Christmas music the day after Thanksgiving, which is the way that God intends us to listen to Christmas music. (laughs) And as I began listening to it on last Friday, I found myself so much more deeply and emotionally impacted by the truths, the deep truths of Christmas hymns new and old. About a weary world rejoicing. About the soul feeling its worth. How much more does that line mean after Ecclesiastes? About chains breaking, about oppression ceasing, about peace on earth and and real heaven-wrought peace. And goodwill toward men, not not mere niceness, but God in Christ putting away enmity that we created because of sin so that there could be goodwill toward us. In this yearly rhythm of Advent, we commemorate, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ into the world in his birth. And in turn, we also anticipate his second coming when he will return to reconcile the world to himself. It's not so that we can act nicely or happily for a few weeks, and then move on. This rhythm, this reality, this truth is meant to form us into people of tireless hope. Tireless hope. People who have seen the darkness pierced by the light of the world, and who therefore, in the face of so much darkness that remains, because the light of Jesus has shone into the darkness, we live with confident expectation that truly the darkness will not overcome it. So after being troubled and provoked in Ecclesiastes, uh, may our hearts find comfort and joy and hope during this short Advent study we'll do in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And today we'll look at just the first five verses of that. So if you have Bibles, you can follow along with me. But listen now uh, with open ears to this book that we love. John chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning With God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5 The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of doubt, cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and the living of this radiant truth. We pray this in the name of the word, of the light, Jesus Christ. Amen. So three things for us to see in these opening verses of John's gospel. The word, a little bit about who this is, his work, and then our hope. The word, his work, and our hope. So first, the word. This first verse, as I'm sure you heard, if you're familiar with it even more so, it's densely packed uh, with foundational truth. So I want to break it down for us a little bit and then build it back up. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. John opens his gospel with this line that echoes the opening of the entire Bible, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And here in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. So this is not by mistake or, or not by some kind of crazy coincidence. As he's preparing to answer this question, who is Jesus throughout the entirety of his gospel, John goes all the way back to the start. And he alludes to the fact that just as Genesis 1 was this account of creation, how did everything come into being, now the entrance of this word into the world is the start of a recreation. Not until down in verse 14, which we'll get to next week, do we definitively learn the identity of this word, capital W. But this is Jesus, as it says in verse 14, the only son from the Father. But even from this opening line and then knowing that John is writing a gospel, which by definition is an account of the person, the work, the teachings of Jesus Christ, We know who John is referring to even here from the get-go. Why call Jesus the Word? Why not just say, in the beginning was Jesus? And I suppose we don't know all of John's motives there, but this idea that he's about to express that Jesus is God would be such a new and such a complex concept for Jewish readers in particular That John, who is a Jew himself, needed a way to show his fellow men and women, his fellow Jews, how this related to, how this aligned with what they already have known about God for centuries prior to this moment. I imagine that if John simply wrote at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was Jesus, that every Jewish mind in that original audience would just say, no way, no way. If so, we would have heard about him by now. We would have heard that name somewhere by now. God's word, though, on the other hand, they have heard of. It was how God has always been at work. Words are how we express ourselves. Words are how we communicate and reveal ourselves. And so, the word, capital W, logos in Greek, is the expression of God himself. As John Calvin writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says, Jesus is referred to as the word, quote, because first... He is the eternal wisdom and will of God. And secondly, because he is the exact image of God's purpose. Calvin goes on to say, Just as men's speech is called the expression of their thoughts, so it is not inappropriate to say that God expresses himself to us by his speech or by his, capital W, word. So calling Jesus the word here is a way to bridge this huge potential gap He's saying, in other words, that the revelation, this revelation is new, but the reality is old. The revelation is new, but the reality is old. Our knowledge, the specifics of all of this, and, and the mystery that Paul will call it later on, is new. But this has always been true. It goes, all the way, it goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, before the first words of Scripture, before time itself. In the beginning was the word. Then it says the word was with God. So this eternal word is distinct from God the Father. There's a relationship. There's there's one that existed at the beginning between the word and God. Later in his gospel, as Jesus is going to pray this high priestly prayer over his disciples and over all who will come after them. He says in John chapter 17, "...and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence..." With the glory I had with you, when? Before the world existed. Before the world existed. So the word was with God before the world existed. And then right after that, the word was God. This word is not just in a relationship with God. Somehow, this word is himself God. Distinct, and yet of the same essence, of the same substance. Of all of the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's will build the strongest and the clearest case for the divinity of Jesus Christ. Throughout John's gospel, if you're familiar with it, there are these seven famous I am statements that Jesus will make. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then I am the true vine. More convincingly, John records an eighth, non-metaphorical, absolute I am statement. He says at the end of John chapter 8, at the very end, he's speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. It's a clear connection, a clear reference to the name Yahweh that God himself revealed of himself to Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. So not only was the word with God, the word was God, is God. And verse 2 then solidifies this by basically restating the same thing in a different order. He was in the beginning with God. Now this prologue of John's gospel is, is perhaps the most important text in scripture that we have about the person of Jesus Christ. And for the entire history of the church, it has hugely shaped what's called our Christology, or our understanding of the person and the work of Jesus. This both-and truth that Jesus is God, but that he's also distinct from God. It's some of the biblical foundation we have for the doctrine, for the concept of the Trinity. That our God, the God that we sing to, the God that we worship each and every week when we gather, is one God, eternally existent in three persons, and that these persons are distinct, yet they are the same in substance. They are equal in power and equal in glory. We don't find the word Trinity anywhere in our Bibles, in the Scriptures, but it is, if we look for it, all over Scripture, including here. Lest we see this, though, merely as doctrinal precision, I want you to see in these opening words of John why this is the only hope for the world why this is the only hope for the world, that there is something new. There is something we have not yet known until this moment that breaks through from beyond the sun. Not just an inspired human being, for the history of the people of God have had many inspired human beings and every single one of them in turn has let us down. They've been exemplary, they've been inspirational, Abraham, Moses, David, but each one of them in turn has let us down. They've done their trip on the merry-go-round of life. It's come to an end. But the eternal word is more than this. Nor is this some kind of Greek or Roman mythological, lowercase g, God, who puts on a body like a suit and walks around on the earth for a while. As the remainder of this gospel accounts is going to detail, Jesus is also fully man. And therefore, as an author named Colin Smith writes, here is something that has never been seen before in the history of the world nor will it ever be seen again. A man who is holy by nature. This man belongs in heaven, Colin Smith says, by right. And because he is God, has the capacity to bring others there with him. Has the capacity to bring others there with him. A man who has the capacity to bring others into heaven, into the eternal kingdom of God with him. This is the eternal word of which John is writing. So, second, let's talk about his work. If that's a little about who the word is, let's talk about his work. After establishing his identity in these first two verses, John proceeds to recount his work. And he says there in verse three, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here's where calling Jesus the word ties in with what the people of God have known and affirmed about God for centuries. Psalm 33, verse six says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Or more simply, if you read Genesis chapter one in the creation account, the creation narrative, uh, it just simply says, God said, and there was. Over and over again, God said, and there was. God said, and there was. So for their entire history, The people of God have known that God spoke the world into existence by the breath of his mouth. And here we see that that word was personal. It was a person. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, was the agent of creation. In his letter to the Colossians, we heard Nate, as he was leading liturgy a little while ago, read from this as well. The Apostle Paul affirms the same thing. Colossians 1.16 says, "...for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible." Whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And especially here in John chapter 1, as there's this backdrop comparing the opening of John's gospel to the beginning of Genesis, the real meaning and the real beauty of this imagery of light into the darkness starts to take shape. Because we know Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the next few verses that follow say this. The earth was without form and void. And what? Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So the power and the grace of God is demonstrated from the very beginning of time by this creation of light by the separation of light from darkness. The darkness was empty, it was orderless, it was formless, it says it was void. And so the first thing that God the Word made, the first thing that God spoke into existence, was light. So when John chapter 1 refers to Jesus as light in the darkness, and he does that against the backdrop of Genesis 1, it's a massive statement. There's a couple components to it. For one, this is the light of knowledge or what we'd call revelation. It's the light of knowledge. Since that moment of creation, Genesis 1, God has been revealing himself to the world. What can be known about him is seen, it's perceivable in all that God has made. So light in the darkness is the beginning of God's revelation of himself to the world. And now, John is saying, in the advent of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, and we'll talk more about the incarnation next week, The light is coming into the darkness again. So it's a further revelation of God himself to the world. And we as Christians in the 21st century, we take that for granted. We take that for granted because for a couple thousand years, we've been able to live with this truth, this revelation of God in our rearview mirror. So we and our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents all the way back for generations— have been able to know, because this was written down for us, have been able to know God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. That the apostles saw it and testified to it, and that they wrote it down and entrusted it to faithful people who would entrust it to others and pass it all the way down to us in the present. But this is where I said that if you leaned into Ecclesiastes, it would make your celebration of Advent that much sweeter. Because imagine not having this revelation. Imagine the relative darkness that that would be compared to the light of revelation that we have now. Imagine having absolutely some promises and covenants from God But centuries upon centuries of these unmet hopes and these unmet longings. If we look at the history of the people of God, they move from slavery in Egypt to liberation. They move into the land of conquest and triumph. They're at the top of the world for a little while. But then there's this massive decline all the way to the point of being conquered and being sent into exile. And they rebuild and they return But never to the former glory they had when they were in that moment of triumph and conquest over the world. To the degree that if we read the book of Ezra, toward the end of the Old Testament, he writes that many of the priests, many of the Levites who saw Solomon's temple previously, when they see the new temple rebuilt, they weep with grief. Because it doesn't compare to the glory of the former. And then, the end of the Old Testament canon, silence. No revelation from God. No authoritative or prophetic voice proclaimed for the people of God to follow. All the while, the refrains of books like Ecclesiastes echoing in your ears. Nothing new under the sun. Chasing after the wind. All is vanity. Only maybe the bedrock of the existence of God, but not hearing anything definitive from God for 400 years. Has there ever been a moment of your life where you have just desperately longed for God to speak for des- you desperately longed for God to make himself known to point the way have you ever been in a, in a deep fog where the complexity of life, the, everything just seems confusing and convoluted and you would give anything in that moment for some clarity now stretch that moment out, whatever that is for you stretch that moment out from days or months or years for you to your entire lifetime. And for the lifetime of maybe a couple generations before you and maybe a couple generations after you. Because collectively, that is what the people of God felt before this revelation, before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so the light breaking into the darkness is the light of knowledge, of revelation, a definitive word from God. As the author of Hebrews will write some years later, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this light in the darkness is the light of knowledge. It's also the light of life. This light was the life of men, John says. In creation... God the Word spoke human life into existence. And now here in the incarnation of Jesus, it's a recreation. And in that recreation, there's going to be held out to all who would believe life in his name. Eternal life, he'll say in John chapter 3. Abundant life, Jesus will say in John chapter 10. As he'll famously tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, not only a first birth as an image bearer of God created in his image, But as we even sang about this morning during Hark the Herald Angels Sing, a second birth, redeemed, a spiritual birth, redeemed to be a son or daughter. This is also something that we as Christians in the 21st century take for granted. But again, remember what we've just been studying together in Ecclesiastes. Every time Koholeth in Ecclesiastes talks about death, he says something like, who knows what will be after him? Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of a beast goes down into the earth? All we know, where he ends the book, is that the physical part of us, the material, the dust of us, returns to the dust. And the immaterial part of us, our spirit, returns to the God who made it. But with this prospect in John chapter 1 of new life, of God the Word recreating what sin has corrupted, comes to us a promise of new life, and even more so of resurrection. And so Jesus is going to go on to say in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is, if this has become stale to your mind and heart, this has become rote to your mind and heart, really think about this, really look at this, especially in light of Ecclesiastes, and let your heart be, be again stirred into affection for what God has done as he's revealed Jesus. This is unfathomable piercing light into the darkness of death, into the unknown and the despair and the fear of death. That in God the word was life and that he will impart this life to all who trust in him. So Jesus the word reveals, gives this light of knowledge. Jesus the word creates and recreates, giving the light of life. And ultimately, Jesus will save. He brings the light of hope. And so lastly, let's talk about our hope our hope. As we arrive in December, and maybe some of you find yourself there as well, um, I've been, even certain days of this week, just overwhelmed by a sense of darkness. Uh, and that's been immensely personal for me. I've been overwhelmed this week by the darkness that continues to exist in my own heart, my selfishness, even, with, even last night <laughs> with my own family and my kids, uh, my own proclivity to to want to try to grasp tightly to life and take control of life and keep that in my own hands, the different sin patterns that ripple out of my functional disbelief, unbelief, rejection of God, I'm also, and I've been there this week too, overwhelmed by the darkness of the world, by the the cancer diagnoses, by the broken marriages, by the broken friendships, by the... Man, the pervasive sense of shame and insecurity that so, so many of us carry with us all the time. And I've been overwhelmed on top of that by the evil darkness that just continues to persist in our world. Whenever John uses this term, the world, it's a really loaded term in his gospel. It means humanity set in opposition to God. Humanity set in opposition to God. And make no mistake about it, I don't know that we could get ourselves to think anything other. But left to ourselves, we are humanity set in opposition to God. And that's true from far away places, like reading this week about the people of North Sentinel Island who killed a missionary that came to them, seeking to share and proclaim the love of Jesus among them. That's true in our own neighborhoods, and our own nation, where, I mean, news story after news story, we just keep seeming to be unable to value life. We just keep seeming to devalue human life, whether that's unborn life or lives of the poor and the marginalized that are already outside the womb. We just can't seem to actually value human life. The darkness among us is prevalent and it is pervasive. So why even bother? Why get up in the morning and make an effort? Why get up tomorrow morning and pursue faithfulness in your life? This I would, I would commend to you, friends. I would implore you to see this. is the only reason why. Because in Jesus, the word was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light has shone in the darkness, shines in the darkness, and truly the darkness will not overcome it. In fact, think of it this way. Every morning you get up, can become for you a tangible reminder of this, that all of creation exists around you today, testifies to that original moment when God the Word spoke light into the darkness. And because of that, every day becomes a reminder, and it becomes one more day of fulfillment, that in Christ, the darkness does not overcome the light Every morning you get up and you see the light pierce the darkness, it reminds you of what God has done since the beginning and what God has done definitively in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't need Christmas to remind us how good we can be. We need Christmas to remind us that though sin has corrupted and fractured all that God made good in the beginning, that though Satan and the world set in opposition to God will try to snuff out the light, it will fail and it will fall, and it will not overcome. So oh, that we would be, and may we be renewed in it this season, a people of tireless hope. Unrelenting, unshakable, undeterred hope in the midst of the darkest aspects of our own lives and of this world. That we would be people who never lose heart. There's a song by a band called Need to Breathe. The song is called Wasteland. And it has this great line in the chorus. It says in that line, in this wasteland where I'm living, there's a crack in the door filled with light. And it's all that I need to get by. As Christians, as those who are formed, who are being formed by our celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in Advent, this is no mere optimism. This is no mere wishful thinking for us. This is our confident expectation. This is our hope. That the earth was without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep, and the word said, let there be light. So when sin fractures and corrupts what God made good, the word says again, let there be light. When it seems to you that the darkness of this world is consuming, when it seems like there's no light left to be found, know that this is far from the first time the people of God have experienced that and been there. And instead of despairing, may we be formed in this even more this season, may we lift our eyes and look for the light. May we open our ears and listen for the refrain, let there be light. Because as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning to yet again pierce the darkness, the advent of Jesus Christ is our hope, it is our assurance that light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Amen. Pray for us. We cry out and we confess, Lord Jesus, the word made flesh, that we need your light to pierce the darkness. We need that in the darkness of our own hearts. We need that in the darkness of this world. And we have seen this week and every week the prevalence, the persistence of darkness in us and around us. And we long for the day and we anticipate the day, especially in this season, your second advent, your second coming, that you will come again to complete the work you began, to reconcile the world to yourself, to make all things new. But until that day, may we be people of tireless hope. May we be people who perceive the light that has broken into the darkness. Confident that you will continue to pierce what is dark in our lives and in this world. And as we so desperately need it, we come to this table again now dependent upon your grace, receiving your grace, that we would be people who receive the light, that we would be people sent out with that light, that we would be heralds of tireless hope from the only source that there is tireless hope. Jesus Christ, the word became flesh who came to dwell among us.